Well, as we approach the final episodes of this spellbinding saga to crown the new Premier League kings, Jurgen Klopp will send his red dragons out to scorch the St. James's Park turf so he can spend another long night on the Iron Throne. But lose and Liverpool's quest for glory in the north will fizzle out like a Dothraki cavalry charge. Rafa Benitez, you saw him a few moments ago, he's bent the knee to the House St. James after he conquered the kingdoms of Europe when he ruled over Anfield. He'll demand the Toonami stand their ground like Brienne of Tarth and hope that Iosi Stark can produce a late dagger to shatter the hopes of his former club. Welcome, friends, to the 100 More Literary Podcast. I am your host, Gio, and I am joined today by Joy. Hello. And Drew. Hello. Hello, friends. How are you during this pandemic? Well, we both work from home, so <laughs> normal. <laughs> Bored, yeah, for the most part. Dude, um, we took a drive today, and it felt so good. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, I, I just succeeded my first full week of working out, so I just did it today. Woo! I noticed you were looking swole. Oh yeah, all of all yeah. the muscles in my my neck and face. Yeah, your chin looks <laughs> super sexy. Oh well, that's just how my chin always looks, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so today we will be discussing a Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin because it's our 50th anniversary. Woo! Are we allowed to do that? Uh, is, is anniversary the right? word there yes, and we have been on for 50, 50 years. years yes we have <laughs> oh that's just how geo feels about recording with us it feels like it's been 50 <laughs> yeah something like that <laughs> but no uh, it's our 50th episode yeah uh, i did misspeak so here we go we get to break this one in soon she speaks the bullshit sorry yeah <laughs> that was fast <laughs> But yeah, I just want y'all to know right before the right before this podcast, he was like, I'm never gonna use that for myself. <laughs> Shame. Shame. Yeah. Shame. <laughs> Terribly appropriate for this one. Absolutely. But you know, a Game of Thrones is easily the most referenced uh, other book on this podcast that you know, in almost every episode, it seems, you hear me play this one. Bow before your king. Bow, your shits. And that's not, that's not an accident. It is absolutely one of my favorite series of all time. Uh, and so it only felt fitting that for our 50th episode, we should do a, a, a Game of Thrones. I think throughout the entirety of your podcast, there's only one other book you mention more than Game of Thrones. I wouldn't say more, but it's definitely a close second. His name is Aragorn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are drop heavy right at the beginning. <laughs> is that a euphemism for something? It could be if you wanted it to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the uh, uh, Aragorn is the only one that I reference almost as often. I, I And I say almost as often because I think Aragorn was like our 11th episode. So even if I were to reference it on every single episode, uh, it would still have 
still be 10 or 11 short, right? That's how math works. <laughs> I mean, we don't know. Uh, we need to go back. Could someone please go back to every episode and count the number of Game of Thrones references versus the number of Aragon references? <laughs> I'm thinking uh, I'm thinking Game of Thrones is going to win that one. <laughs> I think so, too. And I also think that we're at least another 200 to 300 episodes away from having any users or listeners who are anywhere near that dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> I do this show as a labor of love, knowing that very few people are listening. And even I'm not that dedicated to it. <laughs> well, I enjoy being on your show. Thank you. So uh, I don't. Yeah. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking piece of shit. I hate you. <laughs> I don't have a drop for how much I hate you. Sorry, podcast daddy. I won't say it again. <laughs> oh, well, I Bow guess... <laughs> before your king. Bow your shit. It's <laughs> kind of appropriate. I wonder how many times you're going to play that one today. <laughs> <laughs> so, a Game of Thrones is easily one of my favorite series of all times, but. And I think this is kind of an interesting thing about the way fandom works. None of the five books that have been released so far would I call my favorite book of all time. In fact, if you were to ask me what my favorite book of all time was, I'd have a really hard time deciding, and it's probably going to change by the day. I agree. I'm a bit of a bibliophile, and... Trying to, if someone were to ask me that question, I'd have to ask what you know category they wanted it from first. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm straight up 100% one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. <laughs> I have always been a shitty person, <laughs> and so <laughs> as a, how are those two ideas synonymous? Well, because as a kid. I remember looking at the Dr. Seuss books and thinking to myself, those things look stupid. I hate them. <laughs> I hate Yeah, that sounds like you. Yeah, I hate the art <laughs> style. It just, it bothers me. And so like, you know, everybody has this like deep nostalgia for it. And I'm like, oh, that sucks. And so now I've just lost like three of my 12 viewers or listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Including me. Yeah, exactly. Oh, please. Bye. Listen to the show. <laughs> um, so... But uh, despite the fact that none of the five books are, I mean, okay, maybe, maybe Clash of Kings and Storm of Swords, those two books probably crack my top 10. Um, The rest of them, or even all five of them as a whole, are not my favorite books at all. But the series, and it's kind of something that we got into a little bit on Call of Cthulhu, uh, Drew, is how I love a lot about this series. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm like, a huge stand for them in the sense that, you know, I, I think that they're the greatest things in the world or like that I will rush well, to defend it. I feel like it's a, the series is sort of transformative mm-hmm. um, until Game of Thrones like be, started to gain popularity. When it started to gain popularity, it transformed what like was traditional fantasy, which was very like, Tolkien-esque where you have elves and dwarves and um, you know, and everything is like, is going to end up happy and all like wrapped up in a nice little bow by the end. And it turned it into like a um, very much a, a, a gritty realism kind of a thing. And that was for me at least like completely blew my mind that fantasy could even like have that option. Yeah. The series has been out for a lot longer than I 
than I thought it had been. What year did the first book come out? 94, I believe it was. Yeah. And yeah, and it's... I know that I've told this story on this program before, but in case you're, you haven't listened to the old episodes, I will say again that uh, when I first came to this series, I was actually looking for a new book to read. I was at the public library and I was browsing The Hunger Games and I was thinking, I was looking at The Hunger Games. And I was like, this sounds kind of cool. And then Drew texted me for like the 12th time, dude, you have to read Game of Thrones and for some reason, his haranguing me actually worked for once, because usually if you recommend something to me, I, I care not a fig at all. But for some reason, his uh, he wore me down, <laughs> and I was finally like, all right, I guess I'll check out a Game of Thrones. And I so, remember reading that first uh, chapter with the Night's Watch. I was so bored. I was like, oh, okay, so the Night's Watch is like the cool order of knights that's gonna save the world and blah 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 and then Bran gets thrown from a tower and I'm like whoa what the fuck <laughs> so uh that story is basically the same way I got joy to date me <laughs> you threw me off of a tower yes yes <laughs> but only after haranguing you enough that you would uh, agree that is true it took two years of haranguing <laughs> wow Drew, you're a you're a little creep, aren't you? You're a little creep boy. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but Drew also is the one who got me into Game of Thrones. It was when we first started dating, wasn't it? Right before the series came, the uh, television series came out. Yeah, I'm guilty. I was a Game of Thrones evangelist for a long time. Yep, yep. It's all your fault. Uh, well, and I, I remember very vividly, like, starting the book and enjoying it, and I couldn't put it down. And I, I was, I couldn't put it down, even when I was with my father, when he had to go to the heart doctor. I was in the hospital reading the book, going crazy. And then I hit one specific moment, yeah, we'll and I put there. the book down <laughs> and was like, no. <laughs> so on that note, let's go ahead and start getting into some of the story itself, because it's it's a big one. This does not conform at all. This would not make a good movie. The rule is the fewer things that happen, the better a movie it will make. <laughs> and holy shit, do things happen in this book. Like, they don't stop happening. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's insane how much detail and how much content is packed into what you think is a lengthy 600-so pages. And it is. And yet, for all of its length it still manages to be so incredibly dense. This is this is a tome. And it's a reason why in the past, uh, I have recommended that people actually watch the series, the television series first, because that way you get, you, you get to know who the main characters are in a much easier way. And that way, when you're reading the book, you already know who you should be caring about instead of reading like 30 names and then you know 50 pages later you only know five of them that that is true it's it's very because for me i felt like the opposite because yeah there are more characters in the book but at the beginning of the first season they throw a bunch of people at you and if i hadn't already read the book i wouldn't have been able to keep up with who was who um uh I don't when I first read this I don't recall if I 
had difficulty keeping track of the characters. I always, to me, when I start a new series anyways, I'm always kind of lost as to who's who until like a few chapters in, um, you know, like if even something, uh, as you know, as like lightweight or something as obvious as say like the, the Hobbit or something like that, where, um, you know, the Hobbit is a fairly lightweight book for fantasy and they give you a very, like, these are the characters, one, two, three, four, you know, you've got Dwalin, Balin, uh, and all those. Keely, Biffer, Bofer. Right. Even though I I started, I, you know, I was like, okay, which one is he again? Okay. It's a dwarf. All right. That's what I know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so the, the, and and this is a series that demands to be reread. Th- these books demand to be reread. There is so much information in the opening chapters of A Game of Thrones that are just complete garbage if <laughs> on your first read through because you have no idea what the significance of certain things are. Like you're you're reading through the first opening pages and they're talking about Ned is walking through the crypts of Winterfell where the first men were king were back when they were kings in the north and when you're reading that for the first time you don't give a shit about that you're like okay whatever they used to be badasses or something i don't know this is but this guy is important <laughs> apparently and then when you go back and reread it knowing that you know all of the stuff that happens with the the king in the north and the history of the targaryen conquest and all of those other things you realize the significance of the, the kings of winter and the kings of the north and, you know, the history and the lineage and all of that kind of thing. And so even, and, and I chose that deliberately because it's a fairly minor detail that has a lot more weight to it than it might seem at, at the beginning without necessarily being a huge conspiracy or plot point, which it, this series is laden with. And I want to say now that we are going to try to keep our discussion as much as is possible confined to the events of a game of thrones so while we may reference some stuff that happens later on in the series for now we're talking about specifically a game of thrones and so on that note we start we start as i said earlier with the night's watch and the white walkers or the others as they are called in the books which was a necessary (laughs) uh change from book to see from book to television series because having them say the others (laughs) <laughs> would have been really confusing, like, all the time. It, in fact, even in the books, when I'm reading it in my mind, I always feel very awkward saying the others in my mind, because that's how I read. I think in my mind, all I read was zombies. <laughs> like, it said the others, but my brain translated it automatically. Zombies. Right. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know... George R. R. Martin has said in various interviews that very specifically, and it's it's a little disappointing that they don't take this road in the TV series. In the TV series, they're like these horrible monsters. But in the books, they're described as being beautiful, basically. They're, they're they the 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 others themselves, not the whites. The whites are just zombies, yeah. But the others themselves are like, yes, they're pale and icy and all of that kind of stuff, but they're basically humans. They just have, like, really scary, piercing, extremely blue eyes and pale, icy, dead flesh. And that doesn't sound very beautiful, but I'm, I'm but the, 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 the point that I'm getting at is that they're not monsters. They're basically right. just another race of hominid. Well, I mean, 
they're they're kind of monstrous, but uh, sure. But they're like it, it, it's sort of like like the beauty of like the terrifying villainous who is like scary and beautiful at the same time and monstrous and what in their activity versus like you know for instance cthulhu that we discussed last time is yeah. supposed to be um hideous and disgusting to look at they're they're more uh maleficent or elven than they are orcs you know i do think the book starts out very strongly um when it depicts ned's character like he he create he he passes judgment he is there to see the judgment through yeah we go we go very quickly once once we've had our little prologue because i think they mentioned that the others i think i've seen it and i i didn't take special note of it but i'm fairly certain that the others won't appear again until a storm of swords i think so we pretty much established that there are ice monsters out there and then go into what is like a pseudo historical, you know, because there's not really magic for almost the entirety of the first book. And by, and so when we start with Ned, you're right. We, we go to a length to start with depicting Ned as just as honorable as all of those good things. He's very firmly established as the main protagonist um, from the beginning to kind of come back to uh, what we were originally talking about, about the number of characters that are introduced and how it is easy to get lost in that. Um, something that took me a long time to realize, I don't think I realized it until I actually watched the show was that the character from the prologue that survives the encounter with the others is who um, Ned is executing in the very next chapter. Um, and it's kind of subtly done in the book where he, like, they tell you his name, but it's not, it's not like, oh, this guy's a main character or anything like that. It's more, uh, it, they mentioned it as like a subtle way to go. Like he was so terrified that he, even though everyone thought he was a good, uh, soldier, a good committed to the night's watch, he would be willing to abandon his post kind of a thing. Yeah, and it's something that Martin does a lot throughout the series because the same character will appear in multiple characters' points of view and it won't always give their name in every single chapter. But what Martin will do is that he'll describe that character consistently the exact same way from chapter to chapter. So there's an air of mystery when you encounter this character again. For example, when you get to the beheading scene... You're like, oh, a Night's Watch deserter is being beheaded, and you don't know who it is. But if you're paying attention and you read the description and remember somehow <laughs> that he was described exactly the same way in the prologue, then you would realize, oh, yeah, because they, they, they talk about how the deserter is missing an ear from frostbite and fingers on his hands and whatever. And that's, a, that's the exact same description you get in the prologue. So he does that actually throughout the series. And it's it's a very interesting little thing. And it gives you, once you know that, it actually gives you hints at where the story is going as well. So, and, and it's, it's a device that Martin uses a lot. This almost parallel storylines throughout the world. Like, I think very recently, 
in my last show, actually, which I did by myself, so you guys don't may may or may not uh, have heard me say this, but I kind of hate it when everybody went to high school together in the story. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, oh, fuck, man, I get it. All right, whatever. But this is everybody went to high school, the book, you know, like they <laughs> all know each other. And when you take it to this extreme, it's way more impressive that you can even keep all of these parallel storylines going straight and that they make any degree of sense. Right. There's, my favorite in particular is this one in, um, and it, it, it appears in almost all the books, I swear. The in at the and crossroads? It, yeah, uh-huh. That's my favorite. It's just like this joining of a bunch of different little stories and everyone just barely missing each other. It's almost like a comedy routine. <laughs> You're watching Scooby-Doo with Game of Thrones characters, you know? <laughs> one walks in one door, the other one walks out the other, comes around. <laughs> there is definitely an element of that. Uh, but the uh, the story such as it is, is way too massive to summarize in a neat little sentence. Uh, but essentially, the impetus for the story, which is much easier to explain, is that the Hand of the King... John Aaron has died in King's Landing and it is suspected by some to be a murder a poisoning of John Aaron. Now that John Aaron is dead, the king needs a new hand and so is riding north towards Winterfell where Ned Stark lives to ask him to be the hand of the king. I think it's important to note that the reason he's looking for Ned to become the hand of the king is because Ned was basically his right-hand man throughout the entire war um, for him to become king, to take over the king from the previous one. Right. Or anyway. even really the leader at some points, it indicates that he might've actually been more of the leader than Robert. Yeah. They went to high school together, right? Right. <laughs> But yeah, man, high school in in Westeros is rough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds like a tagline. High school in Westeros is murder. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Who's gonna rewrite Game of Thrones as a young adult novel? I got this. I, I, am, I so got this. <laughs> I am so willing to be like the Fifty Shades of Grey of this, where like Fifty Shades of Grey is like Twilight fanfic. I will write Game of Thrones high school fanfic and become super famous and get a movie. Oh, I'd do it. 100%. <laughs> we'll call it Game of Bones. I'm 100% sure that's already a porno. Oh. <laughs> if you're awfully sure. <laughs> I mean... Did you hear what he said? <laughs> a game of bones. If that's not a porno. What are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> but going back to the story, uh, uh, the, the king arrives at Winterfell and, you know, he's like, hey, be my hand. Or now that sounds like he's proposing to him. But, <laughs> you know, he wants him to come down south. Uh, to King's Landing, where the throne is, and be his hand, which is basically his, you know, his vice president or whatever. He is the Riker to his Picard. Yes, Aww. there you go. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. <laughs> I've been watching Community, and I realized that I say that's nice almost as much as Shirley does, if not more. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> but, uh, 
when they get to there, when they get to there, Maester Lewin, in one of the first, because again, at the very beginning, I said that I am not going to fanboy about this about this book the entire time and tell you how great it is and just fillet the shit out of it the entire time. I'm not because there are so many things about this book that or at least so many sections in this book that I just really have a hard time reading and the first one that made me really go like oh, god damn it this sucks <laughs> is when uh, Maester Lewin awakens Ned and his lady Catelyn with a message from Catelyn's sister in the Eyrie and by now you're getting a sense of how many fucking characters there are in this story because if you haven't read the books or watched the TV series I've already thrown out like eight or nine names and so anyway anyhow and we haven't even talked about the other half of the story yet (laughs) exactly this is just like the main thread there are like a billion offshoots uh, but the the message that she receives, it, it's written in such a way that it's like so heavy handed with like the mystery of the situation because Maester Lewin receives a box and then in the box they have to open a secret chamber of the box and in the secret chamber of the box there's a lens <laughs> and with the lens you use to look at the little print and the print is written in a fake language that Catelyn and her sister had as, as oh my god, it's so stupid. It sucks. But it is very contrived. The whole like, I'm gonna send you a secret message. It feels like a old Nancy Drew book. Well, and I feel like a part of that speaks to the characters, um, Caitlin and her sister, who I and I find both of them loathsome, and especially especially in the book, they've really dumbed her character down in the series. But Caitlin's a bitch. I am not going to agree with that 100. percent don't get me wrong, I totally get that interpretation and I get the, uh, why people feel that way. But I find that in almost every reread of the series, I understand Catelyn more and am less able to fault her for almost everything except her severe hatred of John. Which she is very human. Yeah. So it, it, it makes it's one of those things where I'm like, Oh, stupid Catelyn. And then I'm like, would I have done differently? And I'm like, I would have done worse, wouldn't I? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually stupider, so I don't know if I can judge. Well, I, I just find her extremely irrational. Um, and so the fact that this irrational woman plus her irrational sister do all of these crazy, irrational, subterfuge, weird methods just kind of makes sense to me. Well, okay, I'm I'm go- I'm now that on that one I'm going to 100% contradict you because one is not the other. Catelyn is nowhere near as batshit as Liza. Oh no, <laughs> I I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying I see how they came from the same family. Okay. All right. I'll I'll accept that a little bit more, I guess. Um but th- that that's the first scene and it's at least there are at least two more scenes in the book that make me physically cringe to read. And uh, by the way, um, Roy Dotrice reading the uh, audiobook as well, because I- I've read the series like four times. And now on this go around, I've been listening to the audiobook, And I-, I do, I appreciate Roy Dotrice reading the books to me. I, I don't like it. <laughs> like, th- thank you. Uh, I- I'm glad somebody did it, but like his his pronunciations, a lot of his inflections, a lot of time he doesn't seem to understand what he's reading. It feels <laughs> it feels like um 
you know, there's that story that Sean Connery was offered the role of the one in the Matrix. <laughs> and and that he passed it up because he didn't understand what was going on in the story. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, I feel like that's what Roy Dotrice is. Is this he, he's this he's this old man who's been given this wacky fantasy series to read. And he's like, What the fuck is this? How much money are you paying me? Okay, I'll read it. <laughs> I uh, so if it's the same recording that I've listened to, I totally 100% agree with you on that. Um, not to get too far out of it, but at some point he uh, starts in the later books when Brienne of Tarth comes into play. Yeah, he he pronounces her name Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I I the first time I heard that I was like, who the hell is he talking about? <laughs> like. What? Who? Who is Brian? Who? And at what point did he go? Yeah, that's how you pronounce this. That makes p- total sense. Yeah, at least Pitire makes a little bit of sense because it's spelled really weirdly. It you know, old 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 timey I guess spelling of Peter. Of Peter, right? Yeah, old timey in quotes because it's really like no timey. This never happened. But you know. so. You know, speaking of funny pronunciations, I to me, I always refer to him as Petter, like not Peter Baelish. In my head, he's Petter Baelish, um, just because of the way the like spelling of the name mm. makes me go, okay, well, he obviously didn't want us to say, say it the same way as just Peter. Otherwise, he would have just named him Peter. <laughs> so in my head, he's Russian. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> Wouldn't it be like Piotr then? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there's there's so uh, another aspect of the books that I don't really love is that and it's something that I don't hear as a criticism as often as I would expect it would be is that a lot of the characters deal in stereotypes, the most blatant of which is Arya and Sansa, where Sansa is the perfect little girly girl. She's super girly and she wants all of the things to be all nice and pretty. And Arya is the cool, rough tomboy. And there's a scene that's particularly egregious where Arya is thinking about how uh, she uh, uh, Sansa is better at being a girl than her in every single way except for math, <laughs> which because she's the boy, the tomboy, you know, she's way better at math than Sansa. And so she hopes that Sansa, Sansa's husband has a good steward because otherwise they're going to like not be able to manage a household. And I'm like, holy shit, this is really bad. Yeah, I feel like I like I I feel like I know what he was going for with creating them as the stereotypes. He was trying to show like how different they were, but it does come off as like uh, the girly girl and the tomboy. It's like it's such a caricature of the characters. And well, some not ways. just that, but also how much they grow and change, or at least just change, if not necessarily grow. I mean, there's something to be said for that, too. So I, I think I think you're right there, Joy, is that, you know, when you have such caricature of a character, <laughs> there is a <laughs> say that five times. Yeah, fast. <laughs> there's a lot of room for growth. Absolutely. And, you know, just because they come, they, they begin the world by seeing it from two very different standpoints. And by the way, they're they're only the most egregious characters They're by they're not at all the only ones. Even John and Rob kind of slip into these sort of like D&D tropes as well, where John is very much a ranger. He's 
lithe and thin and quick where Rob is strong and burly and big. And it's like, uh, okay, guy, yeah, I get it. And so, yeah. And I do think a part of the idea was to, to make them these everyday staples of fantasy and then off in a completely different direction. I feel like he was setting that up on purpose for all of the characters. What do we have for Johnny? Absolutely. I think, I think that's exactly right. And you know, it, for me personally, it still grates on me, but I I agree with you in that sense at least. But uh, and there's even a little bit of breaking of that as well because there's there's a there's a little scene that I took I, I took note of because it was one of those things where I was like, "Oh, yes, George is throwing me a bone here." Where uh, Arya thinks that Marcella, who is also very girly and very pretty and lovely and whatever, uh Cersei's daughter Cersei is the queen, by the way, again, with all the millions of characters, um, where Arya thinks that Marcella's stitches at needlework are just as bad as hers, but everybody praises her because she's the princess. And so, you know, it's it's an instance of a girly girl not being good at a girl thing, quote unquote girl thing. So there's something it, it's it's not. And, you know, Marcella isn't going to get a whole lot of character development. So I guess she's allowed to have character right right from the outset. Well, you know what really messes with your needlepoint abilities? Inbreeding. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Jeez. <laughs> and, uh, actually, at this point, uh, it's not a spoiler. Because no one knows who she is. <laughs> at this point in the story, when um, uh, when uh, Arya is sitting with Marcella, we've already um, established that Cersei and Jaime are lovers, and they've shoved <laughs> Bran out the window. That's true. <laughs> they really did eat him, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he got yoded. Yo- yeah, yeeted? Yoded? <laughs> Yoloed? I think it's yote. 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 <laughs> uh, but there, there is uh so speaking of aragon she speaks the bullshit oops uh so speak <laughs> <laughs> that's the wrong one that's a freudian finger slip <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of aragon his name is aragon there is something of the unnecessary geography that I'm always harping on Aragon for in Bran's chapter, where Bran is talking to us about the routes that he takes to climb up to the Broken Tower. And this is the only time in the book that I can recall where I felt like I was getting unnecessary information. This did not enrich my enjoyment of the book it doesn't inform anything that is happening later on that I'm aware of, except for unless you wanted to, like, really draw up a map <laughs> and, you know, chart how people move throughout the castle in later books. Because Winterfell does get a little bit more play into its geography later on. But it's just, it's too subtle. It's its not, there's not enough reason for me to know that if you shimmy up the side of the armory and cross the bailey to where the tree is and then you swing hand over hand from gargoyle to gargoyle i don't care there's there's a lot of unnecessary geography in that so what's funny to me is i really enjoy that type of flavor text but i've read much too much uh uh charles dickens um 
But it's really funny because I remember that specific scene you're talking about. And I remember thinking, you know, I can just imagine George R. R. Martin sitting in this quaint little table, sitting back, just lazily scribbling onto his notepad while drinking like a nice cup of tea or probably coffee because he's American, right? You know, and just, you know, just such a serene moment to watch the author write what I was reading. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you just assume his beverage? <laughs> you know, you know. I do love. I I do love that you bring that up. That, uh, George R. R. Martin is very American. In fact, he's from New Jersey, and and so it, it always kind of amuses me to think of this like Jersey boy who wrote this like you know incredible European style epic. You know, and when we, and yet it still falls into the trap of like because it's set in european lore everybody has to have like an english accent and all of that kind of stuff it's this is one of those things where you could have made the tv show where everybody had american accents and it would have been exactly as accurate to the source material maybe even more because westeros doesn't fucking exist and the writer is american (laughs) so (laughs) i i I feel like what would happen is if you made a fantasy series any fantasy series at this point with american accents it would unintentionally become comedic like it like the feeling of it would be just like they're making a joke right i don't get well, it is that a now joke? y'all now y'all we can head right over to west Rose. okay we said american not not south not southern geez <laughs> <laughs> although if you did do that you know they would be the country bumpkins so you know. What about a southern bell? Oh, I mean, let's be honest. The Iron Islands are basically Texas. They're constantly <laughs> trying to get away from the rest of it. Um, they like they're like we make our own rules. We're better than everybody else. <laughs> no uh, comment. <laughs> <laughs> we live in Texas. In case anyone sends him any nasty mail, we love Texas. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I don't know why I said it that way. <laughs> Uh, but then you also have a lot of this, despite the unnecessary geography, you get a lot of necessary uh, information as well. You have, in fact, I don't think that George R. R. Martin has as great of an economy of information as some other authors do, despite how dense the texts are. But he's able to do a lot with a little bit, which he needs to, to fit in that much information. And so when you have things like, Arya is the only one of the Stark children who looks like John. That little detail is so important when Ned later on will say to Arya that he she looks like Lyanna. You, you know, it's it's little yeah. things like that. This the, it's this you know efficiency, this economy of information that is so integral to being able to tell such a massive story, such a convoluted story in what would should seem like a long 600 plus pages <laughs> and yet those 600 plus pages need to contain you know another 800 pages worth of information so it's it's very good economy of information even if it's not super layered every single time the unnecessary geography being a prime example of a time where you just waste pages See, I feel like what that the, you know, you talk about the uh, geography of Bran talking about the castle is that I feel like that's establishing his character as like he knows this place back and forth 
um, and it establishes it, it, the why people would be like, "There's no way he fell. He always, you know, mm. it, it 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 gives credence to that theory as opposed to like uh, everyone else going, "Oh yeah, of course he just slipped and fell," you know, like. Yeah, I, I guess I could see that. I feel like it's overkill in that case because I, th- I think a lot of Bran's little stories about how, you know, Maester Lewin threw a clay boy off of the building to show him what would happen if he fell. And the time that, you know, Bran was being chased over the rooftops of Winterfell, which is a darling <laughs> uh, memory, <laughs> um, you know, and nobody could catch him because he was just so good at it. I feel like all of those little stories accomplish the same thing without boring me is what i'm getting at i guess in this episode we learned that geo doesn't like maps (laughs) (laughs) so one thing that i find very refreshing about this book in general is going into it reading the story you can tell the author knows where he's going He's not just making it up as he goes along, which I can I find very irritating in a bunch of other novels. <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, Harry Potter being one of them. I love Harry Potter, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard. It would be kind of hard for him to tell this story without knowing where it's going, really. And, you know, it, it's probably a large portion of why The Winds of Winter is taking a million years to come out. And, you know, I don't necessarily fault him for it. I mean, there's obviously a certain amount of blame that he takes for how long it's taking, obviously. But, you know, when you have a story that's this dense and now he has the unenviable task of wrapping it up in two two more books, there's going to be a whole lot of mapping and charting of where these plot lines have to go. Uh, but we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves. Um, once Bran falls out the window... Everybody, <laughs> yeah, a Q splat sound. I don't have one, but uh, <laughs> there you go. That'll work. Uh, John is gonna go off to the wall with his uncle Benjen. More characters. Uh, Rob is going to stay at Winterfell. The Bran and the girls were supposed to go south with Ned to be the hand of the king. The kids aren't gonna be hands. The Ned is gonna be hand, and he's taking They're the, the, kids the, the, the Ned's the hand, and the kids are the fingers. <laughs> is that is little finger supposed to be like a play on that then you know yeah that totally could be it <laughs> <laughs> like i know. mean uh, th- that's not the origin of his name but it t- like it makes a lot of sense yeah from a meta perspective i meant not not necessarily uh, from a story perspective, but like from a meta perspective, like George was thinking like, oh yeah, so every hand of the king has little finger in his ear or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that, that kind of works. Uh, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Uh, by the way, characters, <laughs> characters. Uh, but another one of those scenes, it, it's just another one of those scenes. There are two of them here. And I, I know that Joy, I know you like one of them. But I, I can't stand it. Or at least you have liked it in the past. I don't know if, if if on a reread you enjoy it quite as much because I think you've told me that you've found it very sweet. Is when John is giving his little sister Arya needle, and yeah. they say together what the name of the sword is. I was like, what? How did I stumble onto like the Cosby Show? This is weird. <laughs> See, to me, in my head, that moment they both turn into little anime characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. it. 
I think it's so cute and so sweet. Uh, well, to me, it establishes their bond that they can finish each other's sentences. Yeah, I I mean, I see what he's doing there. I, I, I mean, I get it. I just think it sucks. <laughs> that's okay. I think you suck. Uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I, I'm with Joy on this one. I like I like that scene. It, it is a little cheesy for sure. Like, it's not like the most subtle a way to actually like establish the relationship but it is very like charming and it, it establishes that john is like a good guy who really cares for his family and especially Arya. well and a subtle thing that's happening also with john and Arya specifically is i got the uh distinct impression on this read through that uh george r, r. martin is setting them up to be romantically involved in the future which might sound horrible because, you know, they're brother and sister, but according to a commonly prevalent theory, they would actually be first cousins, which is, is still horrible, which is acceptable <laughs> by Westerosi standards. <laughs> Just for the record, Darwin married his cousin and regretted it. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I was just watching Futurama the other day and there's there's a scene where uh, some fire spirits or whatever um, come to the Planet Express group and they're like, we are the mystic aldermen of the sun. And Fred just goes, okay. (laughs) 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 That's just what I was channeling there. But but yeah, and the other one that kind of had me cringing, the other scene that had me cringing really early on is... And, and for a very different reason is that it felt very unnatural and very forced is when John is saying his goodbyes to Bran and he's leaving the room and Catelyn says John and stops him. And then John turns around and she goes, it should have been you. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, God, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that I will was... definitely give you. <laughs> yeah, it's like you got to hammer it home how horrible she was to him. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 bad, and there there are more. Now I feel like I'm going a little bit too hard on all of the things that suck about the book. So maybe now you will believe me when I say that I'm not going to fanboy. So I can back off and I can actually shower a little bit of praise on it. No, man, hit it hard. Drew and I will be here to be like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. You guys did push back on the uh, on the needle thing with John and Arya, so that's fair. So speaking of segues the <laughs> king robert who ascended to the throne by murdering Rhaegar targaryen the previous king so there was we're not going to get into the whole history of westeros this that's like way too massive but we already did that podcast <laughs> that's fair uh, that's fair <laughs> although this is much more recent uh history so uh, that's neither here nor there basically robert is the new king after overthrowing the previous king who was crazy and did a lot of bad shit. But now Robert is king, and I wanted to talk about Robert a little bit. Bow before you king! Bow, you shits! Because I really do think that he is a much more interesting and nuanced character than a whole lot of us give him credit for. And a lot of it comes from Mark Addy's portrayal, where he's like, you know, bombastic and larger than life and all of that kind of stuff. And it's and it's great, although for my taste, Mark Addy is too short to play Robert Baratheon. But yeah, whatever. Eh. Yeah, it, it's fine. It's fine. He 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 got the 
soul of the character right, obviously. I, I, he, was I, a, he was in A Knight's Tale. That's good enough for me. <laughs> yeah, it was a little <laughs> underwhelming to see like the squire from The Knight's Tale being <laughs> the king here. Um, but <laughs> after you get over that, uh, he I, I actually think Mark Addy does a great job as Robert Baratheon. But again, too short. Definitely is the spirit of the character. I, I don't think I've ever like thought about a character portrayal as being too short or too tall. Um, I'm pretty sure I could have watched the Lord of the Rings and not even realized that the hobbits were smaller than the rest of the people. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Drew just really hit us with a, um, I don't see height. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a sizest, Geo. <laughs> I know, the, I'm the worst. <laughs> um, but... No, but the thing about um, Robert is that, you know, there are a lot of sort of meta analyses of Robert, you know, how he's stupid, how he's like, you know, he's a better soldier than he is a king. And some of that is true. And, you know, there's that great Donald Noy uh, quote where he's talking about the differences between Stannis, Renly and uh, Robert, where he calls Robert the true steel and, you know, Stannis is iron and uh, Renly is copper. And, you know, he gives a whole analysis of how the three brothers are very different from each other. And in it, he calls Robert the true steel, although I am one of those who would uh, argue that Stannis is the true steel <laughs> because, you know, he's Stannis is the Manus uh, character's character. <laughs> I, I would agree with you there. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Now. I'll give you that one. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. I, well, I think, I think the point of for, that... Johnny? Uh, I think the point of that uh, differentiation there is that um, that uh, uh, Stannis is hard iron, but and is like unbending it all completely, and that uh, Robert is supposed to be the like very hard, very tough, but also more flexible, so he's not as likely to break. Is the idea? Yeah. See, and I think that uh, the armorer gets it incredibly wrong. Uh, Stannis is the true steel. He bends over and over and over again throughout the series. And again, I don't want to get too much into the other books, but he is frequently adapting to various situations. Uh, I think Robert is actually the copper. He's pretty, but not worth much at the end. <laughs> well, so if we're going with that analogy, then then Robert Baratheon goes into his kingship broken. The whole reason he was fighting is gone. He, the person he wanted to be no longer exists. You could see it that way, absolutely. And I, I think I think the main point that I wanted to get across about uh, Robert, and it's something that I had a, a, a realization about the larger uh, story in general, is that most of the characters' tragic fallings or character, uh, what, what, what do you character flaws? are rooted in their inability to see the whole picture around them. And Robert has is, is very specifically views the world through a soldier's lens. And so when he's talking about how he's giving uh, Jamie Lannister wardenship of the East and West, or Tywin Lannister, or whatever, he's basically handing both the East and the West to the Lannisters. He's doing that because with John Aaron dead, his sickly son, Robert, uh, characters characters is is the warden of the east and is not a martial leader 
So he wants somebody who can actually do those things. And so when he comes up north to get Ned to be the hand, it's as much a martial decision as it is anything else. I So I really do think that, you know, as much as the characters within the story and even us on the outside kind of criticize Robert for being a bad king. And let's be honest, he kind of is. It's not because he's this boorish lout necessarily. It's because he views the world through a martial lens. He thinks like a soldier, not as a king. And so where he sees where he sees martial uh, value in the Lannisters or in Ned or in anybody else, he fails to see the backstabbing and the danger at his sides. That is not something I'd ever thought about, and it makes a lot of sense. I really like um, the ideas that you came up with. Yeah, in a certain sense, you could say he's he's almost as naive as Ned, you know, and Ned gets a lot of heat for being so naive. But not, uh, Ned's tragic flaw is also that he views the world through a very specific lens. And without being able to see the world as it is around him, he's blind to the dangers that, you know, are glaringly obvious to us as the readers. Yes. <laughs> um, so... Let's talk about a character who I think the reason that he has so much longevity and one of the reasons that we as the readers uh, value him or esteem him so highly, Tyrion, is a character who, to a much broader sense, does see the world as it is in a broader sense. Maybe not the whole picture, but takes in a lot more information than the rest of the characters. And one thing that I really wanted to highlight in specific was his relationship with Jon which is, I feel like it's a perfect little encapsulation. And you see some of this as well with like Rob and Theon, where these characters have houses who are at war with each other, yet they create these really strong bonds of friendship. You know, books from now, John thinks back at Tyrion as an honorable person, where nobody else in Westeros would think that like at all. And Rob thinks of Theon as a brother now where nobody else in Westeros would think that at all. And it's it's kind of like, you know, a lot of the story is George R. R. Martin saying war is bad. Like if if, <laughs> if you wanted to make it really, really simple, war is bad. That's 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 George Martin's point. And this is a little microcosm. These relationships are little microcosms of see, we're all just people. You know, when, when, when you take out all of the all of the family enmities, when you take out all of the old grudges, they're just people and they can love each other as much as anybody else can. I do think um, Tyrion's relationship with Jon, in a sense, goes a bit further because it shows us um, Jon Snow's kind of superpower at the very beginning, which is his ability to befriend and appreciate others that people would normally not and you see that consistently throughout the books yes i i think i think that's that's a good that's a good observation as well and a lot of what brings that out is Tyrion's observations that you know most men would rather deny a hard truth than face it and when he brings that little bit of wisdom into john's world john has a new lens through which to look at the world where before he saw it through a very Ned Stark kind of lens. 
he saw it as all honor or not or dishonor. You know, mm-hmm. when he looks at his his uh, when he looks at the rapers who are about to be his brothers in the Night's Watch, you know, all he sees are dishonorable scum. And, after you know, when Tyrion kind of broadens his worldview by showing him that, you know, and also Donald Noy, again, the armor at, at, at uh, Castle Black also has this conversation where he tells John that he's a fucking bully because he's yes. beating up on all of these, you know, fucking <laughs> swine herds and peasants. And John realizes that, holy shit, that is what I'm doing. You know, in his mind, it was all honor or dishonor. And now Tyrion and Donald Noy expand that view. And that's one of the reasons that John also has a good degree of survivability, you know, asterisk. <laughs> but, because he can adapt. Yeah, exactly. Because he has more information. He has broadened his view. At least that's my that's my hypothesis that I that I'm proffering here. I go for it. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Well, and I think that scene in general is like way more important than it would initially seem. Like if, if you were a first time reader through this, um, you would read through that and be like, oh, okay, that's an interesting exchange between two characters that probably shouldn't really like each other very much, but like have a, you know, but it like kind of establishes who each of them are as like a person. Yes. And uh, it it shows Tyrion's wisdom and John's ability to adapt to change. Absolutely, yeah, I, I I I totally agree. And that's another one of those things where it's like the the efficiency of the information being given. You know that 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 information is working to accomplish multiple goals. Um, so just as a side note, um, while there, Jon Snow and Tyrion's party are traveling, um, and they get to know each other. Tyrion decides to send plans back to, um, oh my god, what's it called? Winterfell. Yes. Tyrion decides to send these blueprints back to Winterfell, and it, it to, to help Bran be able to ride a horse. It's for different type of saddle and i think that shows us what type of man Tyrion is he wants to be helpful yeah absolutely and you know i personally relate very strongly to Tyrion uh because i think Tyrion, in a lot of ways has one thing that is extremely relatable to most people in the world i think is that when we read Tyrion's inner monologue what we see are all of his good intentions you know, mm-hmm. for, especially across like the first three or four books, but, you know, by four and by book four and five, you start to get into the areas of, oh, shit, Tyrion's getting a little dark here. <laughs> He's, he goes into emo mode. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, Starts listening to My Chemical Romance. Yeah. And... <laughs> He's not OK. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in the, at least in the first three books, for sure, um, what you're seeing a lot of is all of his good intentions but the world around him only sees the things that he's done. And if you take the side of everybody else in the world, you can see how Tyrion is an evil, wretched little imp. But because we get to hear his inner monologue and we see the world through his eyes, we understand that, shit, man, he's just trying to do his best and he can't believe that everybody's twisting everything to be that way. I think that's a very human thing. You know, mm-hmm. you know, if people don't like me, you know, it, if they could hear my inner monologue the way that they hear Tyrion's, they might see me in a completely different light. And and so it is with generally most people in the world, unless you're just a really shitty person and then your inner monologue is probably really bad. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, 
there's an element of relatability to that. Um, so something that we haven't talked about at all uh, that's kind of important, the wolves. <laughs> the dire wolves. <laughs> oh, no, we did what the series did. <laughs> the TV series. <laughs> <laughs> womp womp. Well, because it it's debatable, honestly, how important the wolves really are. And don't get me wrong, they serve some very important plot points throughout the story. Uh, but even even George R. R. Martin kind of forgets the wolves every now and then, which I don't think is the worst thing in the world. Uh, I think I think George R. R. Martin has said that you know the series came to him with that very first scene that he wrote was them finding the dire wolves. And so the, the series kind of branches out from there. And so I think when you start from that, uh, from that starting point, and then you weave this huge, massive epic around it, it can get very easy to lose the direwolves in all of that. That being said, especially in the first book, they definitely do serve a purpose, with the exception of Lady, whose purpose is to get murdered. <laughs> well, uh, the direwolves... The, 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 the. The dire wolves are essentially a gateway drug. Like, so here's that little itty bitty teensy bit of magic. This yeah. is where that is. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I think that's a good way to look at it for sure. Is that, you know, like I said earlier, the the first book especially reads almost like a pseudo historical. Like it's just knights and ladies and lords and blah 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 blah. Except for the fucking big ass dire wolves. <laughs> like <laughs> Like you can't hide that. <laughs> the direwolves and the the frozen zombies. That's the two bits of magic in the first book. Exactly, exactly. And so the direwolves, you know, they all kind of take after their owners, and you know, Nymeria gets uh, gets uh, you know shooed away. They they do the whole I don't want you anymore. You know, and and then we have Grey Wind, who is Rob's direwolf uh shaggy dog who is rickon's direwolf characters characters you get the idea um but the direwolves are are extensions of the stark children essentially and so when you see lady die you know there's a lot of meaning in lady's death you know that you know sansa's fucked yeah exactly (laughs) and there's a line earlier on where robert tells ned uh to get her a dog she'll be happier for that and, you know, the hound is around and there's a lot of theories around that. Um, so there's there's a lot of layers and parallel storylines and blah, blah, blah. It would be way too much to try to go into all of it. Um, but the the direwolves are definitely a part of the Stark children. Um, and I think well, the one wolf we haven't mentioned, it's the most important, is Ghost. Like, he's the wolf that lasts the longest with his owner. <laughs> You know, and he he does a lot of badass zombie fighting yes. or nymph nymph fighting. If we're trying to not call them zombies, if they're beautiful, they're nymphs. Oh, you mean you mean the White Walkers? I thought you were talking about the Children of the Forest, which I oh. I would have gone with maybe Dryad for the Children. Dryads? Of the well, nymphs are more um or per, not persnickety. Mischievous. Mischievous, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whatever. They're they're what they are. We don't have to make them something else. <laughs> yeah, there's already enough names in this book already. We don't need to add to it to confuse people even further. <laughs> I know. Well, anyone who has not already read this book cannot follow this podcast or it's going to have a very difficult time because right. this is it's so convoluted. Yeah, there, there's there's far too much. 
this is almost a vanity episode. Like this is almost <laughs> exclusively for us to just enjoy talking about a book that, you know, I love. It's not my favorite, but I, I love this series. And, you know, this the first book lays a whole lot of groundwork, a lot of important groundwork. And rereading it is just a pleasure because you already know a lot of the things that are going to happen. And you can you can see the the wink and the nod, you know, on page six to something yeah. that's going to happen three books later. Speaking of characters. <laughs> Segways are weird. <laughs> Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> kind of important. <laughs> Moderately so. On the other side of the world, and this is such a, such a strange thing that George R. R. Martin does, is to have, again, parallel storylines, but this one is literally on the other side of the fucking planet. It's insane that we have these two stories because, you know, the whole drama of Westeros is a soap opera unto itself. But then you have this, like, adventure plot happening with Daenerys in the East. And Daenerys Targaryen is the daughter of the Mad King that we referenced earlier, the one that Robert overthrew, characters, characters. And now her brother, Viserys, has sold her to Khal Drogo, a Dothraki horse lord, uh, in exchange for an army with which to take back the Seven Kingdoms. Right? <laughs> I get it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. So Daenerys's whole story, and, and you know, th th this is... <laughs> damn it, I, sh I should have issued a little bit of a... Maybe it's sort of a, a very light trigger warning at the beginning of this episode... And, you know, now is as good a time as ever because we haven't really spoken about anything too disturbing. But, uh, you know, there is there should be a little bit of a trigger warning for anybody who is reading this book because a lot of the violence and even including the sexual violence happening in this book happens to children. Like, that's not that's not a joke. That's not an exaggeration. That That is just the bald-faced fact. Daenerys is 13 at the time of the events of the story. And, you know, in the TV show, they aged all of the children up three years to make it a little bit more palatable, which I actually think is a was a pretty smart move. Yeah. And worked pretty well. Um, and so, you know, Daenerys being 13 and I believe she turns 14 in the middle of the book has to color a little bit of the way that we see her story. Um, but essentially she is sold to... Khal Drogo, who is, uh, I mean, the, the Dothraki are basically Mongolians, right? Like that's, yeah, that's basically what the, the correlation is there. It's they're, you know, Genghis Khan for exactly Khal Drogo versus Genghis Khan. I mean, it's not a huge difference, but you know, uh, uh, Martin talks about how they're like influenced by several different cultures. And when he explains it, you're like, Oh, yeah, yeah, I do see the influence of other cultures in it, but they're basically Mongolians. <laughs> and so... Specifically historical Mongolians. like <laughs> Right, right. Like, to the extent that they even have, like, better bows than the Westerosi, like, that's one of their, like, main military advantages, that they have uh, bows that outrange any Western bow, uh, and that they uh, they shoot riding from horseback. All of these are things that the Mongolians were like innovators in. The only thing they're really missing is like you know the silk shirts and armor uh, that is an understated and 
under talked about part of what made the Mongolians so uh, effective at conquering was that their armor was actually really good at absorbing arrows. So they died a lot, a lot less than other people did. History facts you didn't think you're going to learn tonight, folks. <laughs> if that... you'd like to learn more about the Mongolians, check out Hardcore History with Dan Carlin. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That hack. <laughs> only listen to my podcast. This is the only one that exists. Bow before your king. Bow your shit. How many times is that? I think we're at but... five. <laughs> five sounds right. But I would like to point out that Cal Drogo didn't just launch himself at Daenerys and like break her and ravage her and all sorts of other things. You know, he was I mean, polite. He, he would do that later. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> but at least on their wedding night. Yes, he's very he's very tender and he's very kind. And uh, it was very upsetting to hear Roy Dutrice read it to me. <laughs> <laughs> He grabbed her nipples and played with them softly until they stiffened. <laughs> Is this, Is this why most erotica books are read by women? <laughs> Is this turning you on? No. Don't, <laughs> don't bust that nut yet. <laughs> There's more in the next chapter. We can stop now. <laughs> Oh, I'm disgusting. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we forgive you. Shame. 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 But yes, he is tender to her on the first night. And, you know, in the future, he does become, you know, they have a better relationship. But I mean, it's it should not be overlooked that he basically does rape her every night after that. Um, for for a while, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's 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 not a pleasant thing, <laughs> just because things kind of work out. <laughs> that doesn't make it okay. Yeah, the Stockholm syndrome kicks in eventually, and she's like, "Oh, I'm cool with this now." <laughs> yeah, you know what? He's actually pretty good in bed, so I guess. <laughs> no, it's not until she gets a handle on things that the sex gets good. <laughs> exactly it's it's the girl on top that really saves the relationship <laughs> that's and and this is the thing that might turn people away from the story is that a lot of people go into fantasy seeking escapism but that's not what george r. r martin is writing george r. r martin is writing realism and in the real world stuff like this might happen and as distasteful as it might be you know, however it is the manner of their relationship beginning, it does end up being a good relationship. And, you know, that's not to say that anybody listening to this who has an abuser should like stick it out and hope that it gets better. That's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> but well, know. she does in the end also end up teaching Cal Drogo essentially how to behave. He She does teach him things. Yeah, I mean, you know, because she has, she has agency as well, right? So, so she's able to find inroads, I guess, with with Cal Drogo, and especially because you know, there's also an element of that first night when he's tender to her. It kind of shows that he's not a barbarian, that he's not brutish and and cruel. 
that he has a softness to him and that therefore he actually is a, and oh, God, I, 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 I'm listening to myself right now and I'm like, <laughs> I'm I know, like, I know, you know, that, you know, you remember how your abusive boyfriend was kind to you once at the very beginning. That means that he's, he's got some good in him and you can bring it out. That's not what I'm saying no. at all. This is fantasy, not real life. <laughs> like, right, right. And so it's, it's just, it's such a, it's such a difficult line to walk. And I'm not going to say that Martin walks it successfully or unsuccessfully, but he definitely walks it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he drives down that road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it, when, when you throw Bran out the window for watching sister fucking, <laughs> you're, you're establishing a certain tone. <laughs> The weird thing about Daenerys's plot is that even though arguably over the course of five books, it's the co-A story, at least in a Game of Thrones, it's very much the B story. It's something that's happening on the other side of the world that characters within Westeros um, allude to sometimes, specifically the, the small court at King's Landing. They're like the only ones who are even aware that there's another story happening on the other side of the world. And so I want to talk about the Lords of Westeros just in general. Um, we can get into a few specific ones if you guys want, but mostly, and, and this kind of feeds into my idea of, you know, how myopic a lot of the characters are and how that's not necessarily, that's not bad writing. It's bad characters like, and purposeful bad characters. Like th that's their flaw and it's colored by their worldview. Most of these lords are, they're fucking lords. You know, they, they've been pampered their whole lives. They have a certain worldview that's very narrow. They've had everything handed to them. They're very much a caricature of what you think of when you hear the word lord. Exactly. Aside from, aside from you know, God, but that's different. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Accepting the most high, blessed be he. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, there, there's also uh, it, it, one of the one of the main moments that really sunk sunk in for me was in the scene. And this is fast forwarding ahead uh, by quite a bit, but that's all right. We're not going to cover every single story beat. I don't expect to even cover most of the story beats. There's just too many. But when uh, Tyrion is brought to the Eyrie. And it, during the trial by combat or leading up to the trial by combat, I should say, a bunch of the lords are like, you know, doting on Lady Liza Aaron because, you know, she's a widow. So everybody wants to marry her so they can become the new Lord Paramount of the Vale. <laughs> characters, characters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all of these all of these lords are talking about how uh, the the all of these lords are talking about how Tyrion's champion, Bronn who is a great character I love. Um, yeah. Is going to, you know, it, it, it will be easy pickings for Servardus Egan. And, you know, their whole rationalization when Catelyn is voicing her concern about the trial by combat, you know, the lords are like trying to put her mind at ease. They're like, women know little of these things. Servardus <laughs> Egan is a knight and Bronn is not. He's a sellsword and he'll, he's a coward and he'll blah, 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 blah. These fuckers. <laughs> yeah. It's just so stupid. It's, it's like, do you guys even hear yourselves? Like that's your whole thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And, and it's also interesting because 
and, and this is kind of where I say that I, I enjoy Catelyn's character a little bit more on every reread because Catelyn is talking about how, like, as a lady, she has seen men fight almost every day of her life because that's what, you know, soldiers do at, uh, underneath the castle walls. They spar and they train and blah, blah, blah. And it makes sense that if you're if you're a lord or a lady, you know, you look out your window and you that's what you see. You know, at some point, you're going to have some understanding of the rudiments of what makes a good fighter and what doesn't. And Lady Catelyn has seen Bronn fight at this point because he helped them get through the high road, which is a tangent about, like, how the fuck is the high road so, like, dangerous? Like, the, the, <laughs> the mountain clans own the high road. Like, <laughs> what the fuck are the Lords of the Vale even doing that, like, they can't go through their own roads without being murdered? It's such bullshit. Because <laughs> they're all hiding. I know. It's, it's just so dumb. But, uh, anyway... But yeah, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, the Lords have this incredibly narrow view of what a good fighter is. Is he a knight? Oh, he's a good fighter. Is he a sellsword? Yeah, well, he's good enough when there are a hundred people standing next to him, but by himself, he's going to die. It's, it's, it's just so dumb on its face. Right. Well, training versus face value, I guess. Yes. (laughs) But there, there's this. So this section in here in the veil is probably what gives me the most nightmares out of anything in this entire series. Friggin' prison cell that has like a missing wall to a dead drop. Like no, <laughs> I would die. I would die in that prison cell. I'd be there for two days and then dead. I'd like sleepwalk over the edge. Do. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty terrifying. The the veil, the veils, the veils prisons are definitely upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's uh, interesting to me is I, it, it it shocks me at how quickly, um, it, like this happens. Like in my head, this is like, you know, thousands of pages into the story already, but. But really, it's not that many pages into it where uh, Tyrion has been captured by Caitlyn and has been, um, you know, taken prisoner to stand trial for the murder of. Um, John. Well, actually, in this case, it wasn't. It was for the attempted murder of her son. Right? It was why he was. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of things. Prisoner. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they just kind of make it like a catch-all. <laughs> But there's there's an interesting little little tidbit in there that, you know, Littlefinger knew Caitlyn so well that he could stage basically the beginnings of his major operation based off of what he knew about her. Yeah, again, let's stay away from later books. (laughs) (laughs) Spoilers, spoilers, characters, characters. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no. And and. um, so while we're here at the Eyrie, I was going to talk about uh, Rob a little bit, but since we're already here at the Eyrie with uh, Tyrion and Bronn, let's talk a little bit about Tyrion and Bronn's relationship. Because I think this is one of the best relationships in the story. And there is a very deliberate and very, you know, when I talk about Tyrion being one of the most broadly accepting views of the world around him, 
uh, valuing Braun and seeing seeing the value in Braun is a huge part of what makes him such a clever character. Where most of the lords of the Vale and most lords in general would see in Braun just a common sellsword, Tyrion sees a valuable ally. You know, Tyrion has book smarts and Braun has street smarts, you know, in the in our present modern parlance, I guess. But and and that's and that's something that's not at all unique to either of them. But what is unique to these two characters is that Tyrion sees the value in Braun's street smarts, and Braun sees the value in Tyrion's book smarts. That's one of the things that makes their relationship so incredibly interesting to me, is that among all of those proud lords who would never stoop to, you know, care about, you know, their their sellsword servants or soldiers or whatever, Tyrion is one who does see their value and sees the value in Bronn. And Bronn becomes a really, really important character and Tyrion's right-hand man. And it extends his survivability in the story well past... And, you know, some of it is plot armor, let's be honest. But, but they they have my favorite little bromance. Or, or, or Bronnmance. Shame. 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 Um... <laughs> We can just end the podcast. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I know you're not, you piece of shit. <laughs> uh, let, let's be honest. I just hate you because I didn't think of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yes, they do have a great little bromance uh, as well. But it, it's it's... When they're on the high road, this incredibly dangerous high road that literally anybody needs like 20 plus people to pass through safely. It's just, God, it's so stupid. It's really dumb. I hate it. But when they're on the high road, you know, Tyrion ha- or I'm sorry, Bronn has this moment of introspection where he sees that Tyrion has a plan, you know, where any of the other sellswords that we've met up to this point, and granted it hasn't been that many because this is very much a lords and ladies kind of story, um, where any other sellsword up to this point would have just killed Tyrion and taken his horse and gone and abandoned him and tried their luck. Tyrion sees, or I'm sorry, Bronn sees the, the value in Tyrion. And when Tyrion is, you know, unconcerned about their predicament of being on the high road, Bronn is like, you have a plan and Tyrion's like yes <laughs> and instead of you know just assuming that Tyrion's stupid because he's a lordling you know he stays with him and he sees it out and it benefits him greatly so I, I really do think that they're that together they form an even more complete and realistic view of the world around them which allows them to survive longer in in the story and prosper in bronze case. right I, I think Bronn's purpose as a character is to give Tyrion a reason to know about the lower classes more than just what he's learned as in Lord school, if you will. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I would call it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, you know, Bronn is like that connection that gives Tyrion the knowledge about uh, areas outside of just the the high class, the upper class. Totally. 
that's, that's it. That's all I got. Totally, man. Yeah. <laughs> and with that useful interjection. <laughs> Speaking of the high classes, uh, Rob, <laughs> who is the lord in Winterfell after his lady mother, Catelyn, travels south and his lord father, Ned, uh, goes south as well to be the hand of the king. Rob is left at Winterfell. In the in the TV series, Rob is just kind of the archetypal, boring hero character with no distinguishing characteristics whatsoever. He's just Prince Charming, and it's so annoying. Yeah, and I mean, he's hot, and I totally fuck him, but, you know, other than that, there's not a whole oh, lot going whoa, on. whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't say I'd go that far. <laughs> I said I I'd did. go that far. Yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> Well, y'all can go fuck him. <laughs> okay. Eiffel Tower, Drew. <laughs> oh, I, don't I don't know what that means, and please don't explain it. So moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Rob, in the books, uh, <laughs> is a child. <laughs> so let's not continue down that road of conversation. <laughs> Um, but that's, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not bringing that up just to make that joke. I, I am bringing that up because him being a child is what makes his character so much more interesting in the books. Even though I do think in general, it's a smarter idea to make the children a little bit older in the TV series. In the books, a lot of uh, Rob's conflict comes from the fact that he is so young. He starts the book uh, 14 or 15? 14. Yeah, he starts the book as 14 years old and he also be, he also turns 15 during the during the story. And so he's a 15 year old Lord of Winterfell. And I texted you guys earlier today because I was reading some of these passages. Some of the scenes with Rob and Bran like make me want to cry because you see how hard this is for 15 year old Rob you know, trying to keep everything together when his Lord Father is thrown into a dungeon and he has to decide to call the banners and go to war and lead the war party and all of these things. You know, there's that great scene. You know what? Let's let's go to what's probably going to be our only quote of of the uh, of this of this episode. Rob seemed half a stranger to Bran now, transformed, a lord in truth, though he had not yet seen his sixteenth name day. Even their father's bannermen seemed to sense it. Many tried to test him, each in his own way. Bruce Bolton and Robert Glover both demanded the honor of battle command, the first brusquely, the second with a smile and a jest. Stout, gray-haired mage Mormont, dressed in mail like a man, told Rob bluntly that he was young enough to be her grandson and had no business giving her commands. But as it happened, she had a granddaughter she would be willing to have him marry. Soft-spoken Lord Kerwin had actually brought his daughter with him, a plump, homely maid of thirty years, who sat at her father's left hand and never lifted her eyes from her plate. Jovial Lord Hornwood had no daughters, but he did bring gifts. A horse one day, a haunch of venison the next, a silver-chased hunting horn the day after, and he asked nothing in return. Nothing but a certain holdfast taken from his grandfather, and hunting rights north of a certain ridge, and leave to damn the white knife if it pleased the lord. 
Rob answered each of them with cool courtesy, much as father might have, and somehow he bent them to his will. And when Lord Umber, who was called the Great John by his men, and stood as tall as Hodor and twice as wide, threatened to take his forces home if he was placed behind the Hornwoods or the Kerwins in the Order of March, Rob told him he was welcome to do so. And when we are done with the Lannisters, he promised, scratching Grey Wind behind the ear, we will march back north, root you out of your keep, and hang you for an oathbreaker. Cursing, the Great John flung a flagon of ale into the fire and bellowed that Rob was so green he must piss grass. When Hollis Mullen moved to restrain him, he knocked him to the floor, kicked over a table, and unsheathed the biggest, ugliest sword that Bran had ever seen. All along the benches, his sons and brothers and sworn swords leapt to their feet, grabbing for their steel. Yet Rob only said a quiet word, and in a snarl and the blink of an eye, Lord Umber was on his back, his sword spinning on the floor three feet away, and his hand dripping blood where Greywind had bitten off two fingers. My lord father taught me that it was death to bear steel against your liege lord, Rob said, but doubtless you only meant to cut my meat. Bran's bowels went to water as the great John struggled to rise, sucking at the red stumps of fingers. But then, astonishingly, the huge man laughed. <laughs> your meat is bloody tough. And somehow, after that, the Great John became Rob's right hand, his staunchest champion, loudly telling all and sundry that the boy lord was a Stark after all, and they'd damn well better bend their knees if they didn't fancy having them chewed off. Yet that very night, his brother came to Bran's bedchamber, pale and shaken, after the fires had burned low in the Great Hall. I thought he was going to kill me, Rob confessed. Did you see the way he threw down Hal? Like he was no bigger than Rickon. Gods, I was so scared. And the Great John's not the worst of them, only the loudest. Lord Roos never says a word, he only looks at me. And all I can think of is that room they have in the Dreadfort, where the Boltons hang the skins of their enemies. That's just one of Old Nan's stories, Bran said, a note of doubt crept into his voice. Isn't it? I don't know. He gave a weary shake of his head. Lord Kerwin means to take his daughter south with us, to cook for him, he says. Theon is certain I'll find the girl in my bedroll one night. I wish... I wish father was here. Speaking of characters upon characters upon characters... <laughs> Yeah, more more characters there. And the Great John is a great character, so I'm glad that we at least mention him in, in this. Uh, but that scene, it that scene is so iconic to me. It, it's emblematic of what Rob is. And that scene is in the TV series, and it drives me absolutely nuts that the immediately following scene of I thought he was going to kill me isn't in the TV series. Because it's such a beautiful moment of, like, vulnerability where Rob is like, yes, that badass thing happened, but remember I'm a teenager? Remember I'm literally a child? And that was scary as shit. <laughs> yeah. That is one thing that I feel like this, the TV show really, um, like, failed at in a lot of ways was the more vulnerable moments of the characters that make them more realistic. 
yeah um get get lost in it frequently um about the only characters that are allowed to be vulnerable are sansa and Arya. you know it's kids are women <laughs> well i wasn't gonna say anything but <laughs> No, there's that great scene with uh, King Robert where he's like talking about Lyanna. And that's a, that's a scene that's not in the books that the back when the show was good. <laughs> um, when he, when the, he has that great line. It's not in the books or at least it's not in the books the way it is in this in the TV series. It's a better line in the TV series where he says um, where he says. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's so really? good. Is that what he says? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bow before your king. Bow your Bow shits. Bow before your king. <laughs> Bow your shits. Yeah, that's what he says. No, um, <laughs> he says, uh, Liana died and seven kingdoms couldn't fill the hole she left behind. Yeah, so it's it's not, it's it's something that you lose out on. And don't get me wrong, it's not like Rob is a massively better character in the books. You don't even get his point of view. So a whole lot of what you get of him is from Catelyn's perspective or Bran's perspective. Uh, but there are interesting moments with him. And for me, that's probably the single most like humanizing moment for Rob. I would agree. Um, I, I think it is one of the things about the first about a game of Thrones, the book that is a little strange is that Rob to me, at least felt like almost like a, like a filler character in the first, in a game of Thrones. Um, not to go into the story of the later ones, but he becomes important. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, is that <laughs> this is such a, this is such a nineties nerd thing. Um, I kind of view him and him and Ned as like Goku and Gohan <laughs> from Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> where there's like that weird moment in Dragon Ball Z where like Goku dies or whatever the shit happens to him. And all of a sudden we care a lot about Gohan. <laughs> And I think I think the creators of Dragon Ball Z wanted to make it the Gohan show after that. They underestimated the appeal of Goku, though. <laughs> well, you know, I we, mean, they did have to go get seven Dragon Balls to be able to bring people back from the dead, right? That's how this works. In this show. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we've referenced anime twice <laughs> in this podcast. Frankly, this would be great as an anime series. In it, fact, it would. If you were to translate this book one to one, as it is in the book to an anime, I actually think it would be wildly successful and really cool. Yeah. Especially with all that child rape. That's normal in anime. <laughs> I mean, it's more normal now than it ever has been. God, have you? Anime today has gotten so dark and upsetting. <laughs> I know. I can't. But I can't it's okay because it. she's a thousand-year-old dragon. <laughs> I, I can't watch it anymore, man. The last one that I tried watching was Attack on Titan. And don't get me wrong, uh, it, it's pretty good. I, I watched, like, I don't know, 10, 12 episodes before I tapped out. And I was like, no, it's too hopeless. It's too bleak. Can't do it. Oh, it's <laughs> It is that. I watched the first season and was really excited about it and really enjoyed it. And I was like, I can't wait for the next season. And then never watched it because I just couldn't do it. You know what the funny thing is, though? All 10 or 11 of those episodes that I watched were all in one sitting because I knew there was no way I was ever going to willingly come back to it. <laughs> so I wanted to see as much as I could of it right then and there because I knew I was never coming back. <laughs> the last thing that I wanted to talk about um, was actually something that 
I wasn't expecting to find on a reread. And this is the cool thing about these books is that they're so dense that it, it really is one of these kinds of stories that you get a whole lot out of from a reread. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, it demands to be reread. And something that I, that stood out to me on this read-through is Jamie, who we haven't talked at all about except for <laughs> alluding to his sister fucking. So characters, characters. Um, <laughs> but Jamie, as you've probably heard, even if you haven't watched the series or read the books, has like this big redemptive arc that's very interesting. It makes him one of the more interesting characters. We're not going to go into that, but it starts in a Game of Thrones where we're showing where if you know everything that happens to Jamie later on and through those events, see the flashbacks of how he remembers certain events in his past where he was honestly trying to do the right thing, where he was put in impossible situations where his king was commanding him to kill his father, where he was, no matter what he did, he was forsaking his nightly vows. He was just put in impossible situations over and over again. And you get, and as you get more and more of his history in later books, you realize how much he has been used as a pawn by the mad king, by his father, by his sister. And all of these things make him such a more, more complex and interesting character. And, when you already know that and you go back to this book and read it, you get to see those little hints of that person that he wants to be. Or, and so when you go back and you reread this, there's something that stood out at me where we were, where George R. R. Martin is deliberately setting up a parallel between the obnoxiously honorable Ned Stark and the, at this point in the story, irredeemably vile Jamie Lannister when Jamie yeets Bran out of the window <laughs> he says the things we do for love later on or the things I do for love rather when Ned is metaphorically yeeting himself out the window <laughs> by telling Cersei he knows that her children are bastards <laughs> He thinks to himself, the lies we tell for love. <laughs> and it's this moment where you realize, and, and, and it's, it's a thing where, you know, the whole thing about Ned Stark is that he, he cannot tell a lie. He's little, you know, he's Baylor the Blessed. He's George Washington. He cannot tell a lie. All of these crazy things. But throughout the book, we're getting hints of all of the various little mistruths that he is told the little lies that he has lived. And John, as we alluded to is one of them, potentially we don't actually literally, we don't actually know that yet. Like in real life, <laughs> we, we have a pretty strong idea, but we technically don't know that yet. That, that scene specifically where, um, where Ned is telling Cersei, okay, so I'm giving you this chance to get away. That's when I stopped reading the book. <laughs> That's when I was like, I cannot watch this happen. I cannot read this happen. I'm not going to do it. I just, I just can't. Cause there was only one way he was going after that scene. And I remember I put the book down and didn't pick it up again until the series started. That was the exact moment. The casting director was like, so Sean Bean, <laughs> you know uh, this scene's so pivotal and it, it's really interesting to me to 
to discuss this scene with people uh, who have read it because everyone I know has like a slightly different interpretation of like what happens there and like what they think was right and wrong about it. Um, for me, like, you know, Joy is, uh, I call her the walking spoiler because she figures everything out well before, um, <laughs> before I do. So, um, but when, but when I read it, you know, I, to me, it almost seemed like the logical thing to do and the honorable thing to do was to try and save these people's lives. Cause she, cause he knew that, uh, that they would be killed children and uh seriously included um and and i had just come from reading you know things like the bulgariad um or any other typical hero's journey uh type of books yeah and had never read anything that um had the a chance where the main character could be anything but the main character oh my sweet summer child <laughs> <laughs> well there's and, that and there's also you're an honorable man and you see that in others and i i love that about you oh yeah no I, I i totally get that and for me you know th this is another and th this is kind of my working theory now as i've been rereading this book um on this particular reread is that, you know, and this this is Ned's character flaw. This is the lens through which he views the world around him, is that he's trying to save the children, as you said. So it's not even necessarily all about his precious honor. You know, a lot of times we kind of boil Ned down to that as, you know, his honor being his vanity. But that's not where he's coming from. He cares more about protecting the children than his own honor. And he even thinks that to himself when he's when he's uh, telling Cersei, he thinks about, you know, if it were to come, if he had to tell all of these lies and do all of these horrible things, if he had to yeet a child out of a window, um, if it came down to some nameless child or his own children, what would he do? And he thinks that he hopes he never has to find out. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he never has to find out. <laughs> <laughs> But well, and, you know, you talk about uh, parallels between the characters, you know, him and, believe it or not, Circe have similar motivations in that fact, except uh, Ned's is about, like, every innocent or every child, and Circe is specifically her children. Her Like, her motivation throughout is always about her own children. Like, she doesn't really give a shit about anybody except for her kids. That's an interesting correlation because the other thing I think about both of them is I love Ned. He's like my favorite character in the series, but neither of them are as smart as they think they are. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, th there there are certain moments and, I, you know, getting back to a more literary analysis of the story. This is something that George R. R. Martin does a lot, actually, is, you know, a lot of people complain about myself to a certain degree included that, you know, uh, Martin switches from point of view character to point of view character just as the story is getting interesting. So, you know, like, you're really getting into Ned's story and now I have to read about, you know, Jamie or whatever. And you're like, oh, what the fuck? I liked that story. 
Um, but a lot of times, and the, the example that I have uh, noted here is Tyrion and Bronn realizing each other's value. You have that scene, and then you immediately go to John on the wall talking to Maester Aemon about recognizing the value of Samuel Tarly, characters, characters, <laughs> and <laughs> more characters. And then Chet, who is this random, you know, Night's Watchman who is lowborn, is talking about how Samuel is worthless and stupid. And, you know, if if uh, Alice or Thorne doesn't make a man out of him, then he just as well be dead. And John says, that's stupid. He's He's got skills that we can use. We need every man on the wall. And so you have this contrast where this lowborn, the, the lowborns and highborns on the wall don't see the value in Samuel Tarley. And you contrast that with the immediately preceding chapter where Tyrion and Bronn are seeing the value in each other despite being lowborn and highborn. So it's something that Martin does very deliberately from chapter to chapter as well. So... Random segueing right into that. That's another. That's another perfect example. Is what was wrong with these lords? Why were they not sending more people to the wall? What were they thinking? It seems like a really good idea, right? I mean, especially when you hear Samuel Tarly's story, is that you know basically the father wanted his younger son to succeed him. So, what's an easy way around that? Send the older one to the wall done like it seems like a really good solution to a lot of you know otherwise political problems <laughs> right well and they're constantly like talking about crime and thieves and such like that but the night's watchmen have to physically go to get these people like shit send one guard with like three people in a cage up to the wall for a month and you know like seriously it's it's it seems an underutilized system here like there's a whole lot of people that are not um making full use of a of a perfectly good penal colony <laughs> <laughs> they call it Australia, right shame. i don't get it shame shame you guys make me want to die <laughs> then my purpose in life has been fulfilled <laughs> uh so I don't want to I don't want to get too much into the spoilers of how the rest of the story goes. The, honestly, <laughs> you probably know it already. I think the statute of limitations is done with that. <laughs> yeah, but we've talked enough about the story and a lot of the themes, characters, things, literary stuff, all of that, without having to unveil things that happen in the story, and that's fine. So. I, I'm I'm happy enough leaving it there. So, uh, Joy, do you have anything else that you wanted to add? Um, I think we covered everything that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, without spoiling stuff, I think we've gotten through everything that I think is important. As long as I've as long as I've expressed how freaking scary the eerie jail is, you know, we're good. <laughs> Fair enough, uh, Drew. Do you, uh, star rating recommendations? I mean. This book, as I've said previously, was transformative for me. Um, I think it's well worth a read, along with the uh, the sequels. Um, I like. I think if, while it's not perfect, it's so good you you have to read it. And how many stars does that um, indicate? Uh, four and a half. <laughs> 
man, you're mean with those stars. <laughs> well, he said it wasn't perfect. So, <laughs> uh, Joy, rating, review, uh, recommendation? Well, it doesn't have to be a perfect book to be five star enjoyable. <laughs> you're like fair. an Amazon reviewer. You only get <laughs> one or five. <laughs> Uh, I'm a I'm a black or white kind of person. Oh boy, open up the window. It's getting all racial up in this piece. <laughs> um, but I don't know if it's just like nostalgia or or just just the general happiness or wonder of initially reading this book. I, I will always have that with me, um, and so I just I can't help but enjoy it and give it a five star. Okay, cool. Um, for my part, uh, I I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, between you guys, as far as four and a half and five, uh, I would definitely give this like 4.8 stars. <laughs> like, it's just... The, the, it, there's no denying its place in the cultural zeitgeist. And for that alone, it probably gets like three stars already, even if it was wretched. Um, but it's such a good story. It's so dense. There's so much to mine from it. That you can you can and probably people have taught entire classes on just this series of books. There's already a lot of literature written about it because it really is it's 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 deep, it's complex, it's accessible weirdly, it's got everything you want in it. But at the same time, you know, it, it seems funny to say it now, two hours later. But, you know, 30 minutes into this <laughs> podcast, you know, I was just rattling off all the things I hated about it. <laughs> so it's not a perfect book by any means. And I do think that there are moments th there's a moment where uh, Martin completely breaks the, the writing style that he's in, where he's where as the omnipotent third party narrator, he says something like, and it must be said for Vardis Egan that he did blah, blah, blah. And I'm like. Whoa, 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 what, what, who's talking? Who's telling me this? Like, you know, and so it's not a perfect story. There are things that are cringy. There are things that are, that kind of break his own narration. It's, it's, you know what it is? It's the first Pokemon game. <laughs> it's beloved. It is an absolute classic. It's so beloved you can go back to it and enjoy it like the very first time you played it. But you can't deny that it's got bugs like crazy. Some of the things just don't make sense. Some of it is flat out broken. And that's okay. It doesn't necessarily destroy the experience or anything. And yeah, so for me, it's 4.8 stars. Um, I recommend this to anybody who will go into it understanding that this is not escapism. You are not going to read this at the end of a long day because you just want to read something fun. That's that's not what this is. This <laughs> this is a heavy story. This is you, you, that's very enjoyable. That's very cool. That's got all of the fun and fighting and all of that kind of stuff too. But you're also going to have a little bit of sexual violence, some of it involving children. <laughs> and you know, you can't you can't get away from that. So uh, that's that's everything that I have. Uh, so I guess that's A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin. We did it! Yay! Ding, ding, ding. What a
What do we have for Bow it, Johnny? Bow before you, King. Bow, you shit. Oh, my sweet summer child. Yeah. <laughs> all of them all together. Yeah. Oh, this Doom! one too. Uh, if you want to tell us about your Game of Thrones conspiracy theories, we would like to hear about them. You can email us at 100morepod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 100morepod. You can check out the 100 more list, which is becoming increasingly irrelevant as the pandemic continues. But you can check it out on goodreads.com. Search 100morepod. Please rate and review us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your uh, podcasts from next time on the podcast we will be discussing the most dangerous game by richard connell i know i promised that we would be reading it on this episode but it was the 50th episode so we really had to do something as uh, special for it and a game of thrones is one of my favorites if not in if not my absolute favorite so until next time i have been geo and i'm joy and i'm drew and we'll be back next time with The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. Wow, the library really is a great resource.